and going to chapter 5, verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that black Bible in the pew in front of you, take it home with you, uh, read it, put it to good use. Nearly 400 years before the Apostle Paul, there lived a man named Aristotle. Aristotle, along with his teacher Plato, uh, has been called the father of modern philosophy. One of the primary focuses of Aristotle's teaching was that of vice and virtue. Vice and virtue. Now, much of what Aristotle had to say about vice and virtue was really wise and incredibly helpful. So you can take this idea of the golden mean, for example. According to Aristotle, the golden mean, uh, for something to strike the golden mean, was for it to be a virtue in that it's not too much of this and it's not too little of that. So consider the virtue of moderation, right? Moderation is a virtue because it avoids the extremes of overindulgence on the one hand and complete abstention on the other hand. So like an example of that would be the moderation in eating, right? So according to Aristotle, you strike the golden mean of moderation in eating when you don't pig out on ice cream every single night, an entire pint of Ben and Jerry's every single night. I'm just grabbing this one out of thin air, okay? And on the other hand, you also don't starve yourself, right? You just eat healthy, enjoy food, trying to be wise, and you're free to enjoy a pint of Ben and Jerry's every so often. Or consider the virtue of bravery. Aristotle understood the virtue of bravery to exist in the space between recklessness and cowardice. Now, Aristotle also thought that when teaching on virtue, uh, one should never be too specific. He thought it best to sort of just teach on the generalities of virtue and let those who are growing up in virtue apply the principles that they see best in any given situation. Now, I think there's some wisdom to that idea, right? Because uh, paint-by-numbers morality in a fallen world very rarely works out well. But I think at this point, at least to some extent, Aristotle and Paul and Jesus diverge, In our reading this morning, Paul is going to get very specific in his teaching on vice and virtue. If you remember last week's sermon, Paul told the Ephesian Christians, hey, if you profess to be a Christian, now you need to live like it. You need to live out your faith. You need to walk like Jesus. And he began to tell them how to do that by saying, hey, you need to put off sin and put on righteousness. In today's text, Paul is going to get more specific And he's going to tell us what that might look like for the followers of Jesus to put off and to put on. Now, in in this morning's text, Paul isn't going to exhaust every point of application about putting off and putting on. But like a good pastor, he just kind of gives out five or six examples, five or six different ways that if we've been changed by Christ, if we've been changed by the gospel, it should affect our lives like this and and like this and, and like this. Uh, before we look at these examples and dive into the text, I want, I want us to know that there's a general pattern in today's text, a general pattern. 
And you can keep that in mind as we read and as we study together, and I think it'll help you to kind of grasp what Paul is saying more if you have that pattern in mind. So the pattern is this. Paul says, stop doing this and instead do that because of this. Stop doing this, instead do that, and then he gives the reason why. Why you should stop doing this and start doing that. So, for example, look at verse 28. In verse 28, you can, you can see that there. He says, in the same way, oh, I'm in the wrong book, guys. No, I'm in the right book, wrong chapter. Aha, we'll get there. 28, let the thief no longer steal, so stop stealing, right? But rather, let him labor, so work hard, doing honest work with your own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The reason why he stops stealing and starts laboring is so that he can share. So let's read the text for ourselves, and then we'll get to it. Starting in chapter 5, verse 25 through 5, 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us with your truth this morning. Amen. I've got two main ideas that I want to communicate to you this morning. Two main ideas. The first is this. Your sanctification is not your own. Your sanctification is not your own. The second idea that I want to communicate to you this morning is that in order to grow in sanctification, you must practice imitation. To grow in sanctification, you must practice imitation. <clears throat> so let's look at that first idea. Your sanctification is not your own. As modern Western men and women, we tend to be individualistic in our thinking. What that means is that when we come to the Bible, we often read the scriptures through the lens of our individualism. So when we come to a text like the one that we're studying this morning, we will be prone to think that this is talking about us as individuals only and will miss the corporate aspect of the language here, the corporate nature of the language that Paul is using. Simply put, we think the text is about me when really the text is about us. So let me elaborate. I think it's pretty easy to read 25 through 29, verses 25 through 29, and understand the ethical imperatives that Paul gives us here, right? Don't lie, speak the truth. Uh, it's okay to be angry, just don't let your anger consume you. 
Don't use your hands to steal, but instead use them to do hard work. Don't use your tongue to tear down. Instead, use it to build up. But what you may miss as you read the text this morning is that every time Paul says, don't do this, but instead do that, the why that he gives is corporate in nature. He says, don't do this and do do that because of how it will affect the body, how it will affect the church. So let's just look at each one of these four ethical imperatives a little closer so you can see what I mean. So let's start in the first one, verse 25. Let's just reread it together. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So Paul assumes that these Ephesians have put away falsehood. He says, having put away falsehood. And he assumes that because they're professing Christians, and that's what it means to be a Christian. You walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. You walk in the truth. You put away all things that are false. And then Paul goes on and he says, now you need to be in the habit of speaking truth to one another. Well, why? Is it because lying is a sin? Well, yes, that's certainly true. Lying is a sin. Is it because lying breaks one of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment? Well, yes, that's true as well, but that's not the reason that Paul gives here. I'm sure that Paul would say, yes, no, definitely that, but it's not the reason that he gives here in this context. Paul says here, you shouldn't lie and you need to tell the truth because you're members one of another. You remember Ephesians 4.15? Just flip back over, or maybe you don't even have to flip. Maybe you can just look on the page preceding this page. Ephesians 4.15. Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So do you see that? Paul has already told the Ephesians that as a body, the way that we build the body up, the way that we build the church up, is to speak the truth to one another in love. In contrast to that, a church that lies or that walks in deception, that lives in that pattern of deception and darkness, well, that body's only going to continue to tear itself down. And so Paul says, listen, since we're members of one another, we need to speak to one another in a way that's going to seek our mutual good. Number two, from verse 26. Here we see what Paul has to say about anger. Let's read 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You probably know that anger in and of itself is not necessarily bad, right? There is such a thing as righteous anger. <clears throat> you can uh, just consider these two examples from scripture. Psalm 119.53, the psalmist says, uh, I love the way he says this, it's so dramatic, it's just right in my wheelhouse, you know. He says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. That's pretty powerful. Jesus, Mark chapter 3 verse 5, he says, Mark tells us, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, right? So anger that flows out of envy or spite or pride, that's always bad. It's always sinful, but righteous anger is a real thing. And as Christians trying to serve God living in a fallen world, we should expect to look around and experience 
righteous anger from time to time, whether that's the name of the Lord being blasphemed or babies being killed or people being treated differently based off of the melanin count in their skin. Any number of different things that we see should cause righteous uh, indignation in our hearts and in our minds. But even righteous anger can morph into sin. Anger, even righteous anger, is like a volatile substance. It's, it's dangerous to handle and to hold on to for too long. That's why James tells us to be slow to anger. Right? He doesn't say don't ever be angry. He just says, hey, listen, anger is dangerous. So be slow to get there. In today's text, Paul says that it's okay to be angry, but he says don't let your sun go down. Excuse me, don't let the sun go down on your anger. <coughs> now, uh, a lot of married couples have a rule in their marriage it's a really good rule, and I don't want to discourage it in any way. It says we're not going to go to bed mad at each other, right? We're not going to go to get, if we have to stay up till 3 a.m., we're going to figure this out, but we're not going to go to bed mad at each other. And that, that rule is pulled right out of this verse, right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, I like that application. You should probably know that this verse is not intended to be understood literally. So let me explain what I mean. In the Torah, right, the law from the Old Testament, the sunset was the end of the workday for the, for the day laborers. So in Deuteronomy 25, 15, God specifically commands the foremen or those who hire the day laborers. He says that you have to pay the laborers by sunset. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Pay them their wages each day before sunset. Why? Because they are poor and are counting on it. They're vulnerable. If you don't pay them, they're going to they're gonna be vulnerable to all the things that it means to be poor in the ancient Near East. Now, Paul is taking this concept of vulnerability from the fields, and he's applying it to life in the local church. And his reasoning goes something like this. You must pay the poor man promptly, because if you don't, he will be left vulnerable and exposed. Paul is saying about your anger that because of sin and weakness, we are also vulnerable and exposed to our anger. We must handle it with expediency because if we don't, sin will have an opportunity in our lives. Now, I don't think that Paul means here that we must handle our anger literally before the sun goes down, right? Like as if like you're angry, man, you and your wife or your husband got into it or you got some stuff you're going through with your boss or one of your employees, and like the sun goes down and you haven't quite worked it all out in your heart yet, like now you're in sin as soon as that it goes over the horizon, right? I think what Paul means is that we should handle our anger with the urgency that our vulnerability to it requires. We should handle our anger with the urgency that our vulnerability to it requires. So for example, in the medical field, you often have to use sharp utensils, right? So you have to use a blade to like lance a boil or you have to use a needle to give a shot or an IV. And when handling sharps, you need to know how to dispose of them properly and in a timely manner, right? You, you gotta, as soon as you're done cutting somebody, you need to put it in the sharps container. And the reason why is because if you leave sharp utensils just lying around after the procedure, you're, you're, there's, there's a vulnerability there. You're exposed. The, the odds of an accident happening, happening and somebody being cut or poked or stabbed are high. 
Likewise, not disposing of our anger promptly gives an opportunity for anger to get the best of us because of how exposed we are. And more than that, brothers and sisters, not handling anger properly can give Satan a foothold in the church. I don't understand Paul here to be specifically talking about us as individuals and how we deal with anger in our lives. I understand Paul to mean that you need to handle your anger because if you don't handle your anger, it will affect us corporately. So when Paul says that Satan will have a foothold, I think what he means is that Satan will have a foothold in the life of the church. And if you've been a Christian and if you've been in a church long enough, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was trying to think of an illustration but that seemed like a dangerous idea as a pastor. So like pulling from my own context. But I mean, that's why I'm doing it this way. So you can just, you've, if you've been in a church, you know when Janet got angry at Susie and they just let it fester and all of a sudden now there's a church split. How did we get here? The church was doing great. There was a nursery schedule conflict and now all of a sudden 40 people are walking out on a Sunday morning. Well, because people weren't handling their anger in the way that they should have and allowed, allowed Satan to work his way into the life of the church. Number three, look at verse 38, excuse me, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, not a whole lot needs to be said here, right? This is pretty simple. Don't steal. Instead, work hard. And Paul says it's not merely enough as a Christian to stop stealing. You also need to do some kind of labor that allows you to actively contribute. But why? Why is that important? Well, Paul says, he says, so that you can share with anyone in need. Before we move on, though, I want to make sure that we understand what Paul means when he says anyone in need. Because I don't want us to walk away from here with unnecessarily burdened consciences. I mean, I know people who feel like, they just, they, you know, they're wrestling through like, okay, so how generous is generous enough? Every person who knocks on my window and asks me for a dollar, do I need to give them a dollar? Uh, do I need to buy a meal? Do I, that guy who's knocking around saying, hey, I'm from Chattanooga, I ran out of gas on the side of the road, do I need to go get gas for every one of those people that are doing that? I've wrestled through this in the life of the church. We have people knock on the door of this church almost every day asking for money. I'm wrestling through like, man, okay, Where's the line? How do I approach all of this? Well, uh, I think that there's a, a good way for us to think about that, okay? I think the, the general idea in Scripture is that anyone does not mean everyone. Anyone does not mean everyone. I think anyone means anyone that the Lord brings into our path according to a few principles. And I get this idea from the language that Paul uses in the book of Galatians. So in Galatians 6.10, Paul says this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Aw, I thought I just said it's not everyone. Am I, I don't want to contradict Scripture. But he says, and especially, uh, that's a good word, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right? So I think when it comes to the idea of, of helping people, we should have a grid of concentric circles in our mind. So a grid of larger and larger circles. So in the center of that grid, in the very bullseye, the, the circle right in the middle, I think you need to have two things. You need to have your family and your church. Family and church with like, you know, a slash. They're right next to each other, 
right? Paul says that anyone who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, right? So family is right there. Now, why do I have local church there? Well, for two reasons. Number one, the local church is the main instrument that God uses for the sake of the Great Commission. And I think gospel purposes are dead on level with taking care of our physical needs in our family as I read the Bible. But two, there's just language that Jesus uses that makes me want to, to say that I think that that's right. So for example, they come, Jesus's family come looking for him one day and they're like, hey Jesus, your family's outside. And he's like, who's my family? And then he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother, right? So there's a sense in which you are in a very real way more family with, an un- with a believer that you've never met in China than you are with your aunt who's not a believer right down the road this morning. So that's why I put local church and physical family right next to each other. The next circle out from that, I think, should be the universal body of Christ. So still caring for God's people. This is missions. This is caring for the persecuted church. This is suffering Christians outside of the local body. So you think about the way that the Macedonian church sacrificed greatly to take care of the famine in Jerusalem, the Christians who were experiencing the famine in Jerusalem, that sort of thing. And then finally, in the the last concentric circle that comes outside of that, I think we should have financial help for those who are not Christians, but those who happen to be near enough in proximity to us that if we were to ignore them, it would be sin, right? It would be unjust. So you can think about two parables right along these lines in the New Testament. You have the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? There's a lot going on in that parable, but the main thing is that God's people just keep walking right past this person who's hurt on the side of the road. They're just walking right past him and ignoring him for a number of different reasons. Or you can think about the rich man and Lazarus. The reason why the rich man was guilty wasn't because he wasn't helping all of the poor people in the world. Nobody can help all of the poor people in the world. He just wasn't helping the poor man who was sitting right outside of his gate, right? So, family, local church, outside of that, kind of the household of faith in a number of different ways, missions, evangelism, etc. And then outside of that, the poor as, as the Lord leads us providentially. Now, I hope that's clear. I hope it's helpful. But I do want to make sure we come back to the main point of the text. That's just kind of a thing that's true, and I think it helps us make sense of certain things, but it's an aside. The main point here of verse 28 is this. Your labor or your lack of labor is a fruit of sanctification that affects the body. Those who are slothful and even those who steal negatively impact the body by draining resources that should be directed for gospel purposes. But those who work hard, who labor diligently, they are always able to contribute the fruits of their labor to the service of the body to meet any need that may arise. So my question for you this morning is when you think about work, do you think about it in this way? You know, the American dream is I'm gonna hustle, grind, bust my butt, I'm gonna gonna get after it and I'm gonna work really hard so that I can stop working one day when I get older. And I understand that tendency. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm Dave Ramsey right there with you. But in another sense, we should never retire because we understand that our labor is not our own. 
You may stop working at this job and go do something else, but, but you just need to understand that your ability to work well is not fundamentally about you, it's about us. It's about the body of Christ. All right, number four. In verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul says no corrupting talk. Now this word corrupt that Paul uses here, it's found elsewhere in the Bible to talk about things that are putrid or rotten. So it's used to talk about decaying wood or rancid fish or rotten fruit. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he talks about a tree that produces bad fruit. It's corrupt fruit in Luke 6.43. The idea here is that there is a kind of speech that corrupts those who hear it, that merely by listening to, to that speech, they are more corrupt having heard it. This could be vulgar humor. This could be gossip. This could be slander. This could be unnecessarily inflammatory language. I'm thinking about 2016 political season. I'm also trying to like, you know, drop a hint about the 2020 political season. Brothers and sisters, Please don't make me have to like sit down with you and have a conversation about things that you're saying on Facebook that are just entirely unchristian because of how worked up you're getting about Trump versus whoever. It's fine to have political opinions. It's not fine to use overly inflammatory language to argue for your political opinions on Facebook. This could be abusive language. This is almost certainly involving cursing. We live in an age where it's like, man, as soon as a Christian starts to really feel like they're mature, they start to feel like, ah, curse words aren't that big of a deal. Uh, yeah, they are. We all sort of inherently know that these words are foul. There's a reason why we don't let our children say them. There's a reason why they're not usually or typically said in business environments, right, in, in professional environments, okay? And the list could keep going. Instead of this kind of talk, says Paul, we should use language that builds up, language that gives grace to those who hear it. We should speak in such a way that when people walk away from us, they, they feel like they've encountered grace. Now, I know that that may feel hard, like sometimes when you have to rebuke somebody or be blunt with somebody, but there's even a way to do that, and I'm still working it out, so bear with me, where we can say hard things to people in a way that leaves them feeling like we season them with grace as we go. I'm talking about speech that leaves people more hopeful for the future. Speech that leaves people more confident in Christ. Speech that leaves people more empowered for holiness, more prepared for suffering, more equipped for missions, more free to confess sin, more full in their joy in God. Language that just, it just puts off the aroma of Christ and leaves those who hear it smelling that way. I remember being a teenage boy I was supposed to go to the skating rink with this girl. Her mom came and picked me up. You better believe I had that Aspen cologne. Boom, 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 boom. 13, 14, 15 squirts. I got in the car. Her mom had to roll the window down. Oh, you smell nice tonight, Sean. <laughs> I was just so full of the aroma of cheap cologne that like even later that night, people were asking the girl who I was there with, hey, are you wearing something? That's kind of what our speech should be like. We're just putting off the aroma of Christ so much that people leave smelling like it after they've heard us talk. Our words are powerful. We already saw last week that God has given members of the church the ministry of speech. 
And we must constantly be on our guard to make sure that the words that we use are like cranes that lift each other up, not wrecking balls that tear each other down. I hope you see, brothers and sisters, what I mean when I say that your sanctification is not your own. As Christians, our words are not our own. As Christians, our emotions are not our own. As Christians, our work is not our own. I hope you see where I'm going with this. As Christians, our bodies are not our own. There's nothing that is our own if we are a Christian. We, We give it all up when we come to Christ. Christ purchased us. The Bible calls us slaves of Christ for a reason because he owns us body and soul. And when he does purchase us, he doesn't leave us in a vacuum. He connects us to himself. And that means that we're connected to other saints. And so everything that we do affects everyone else that we're connected to. For that reason, our sanctification is not our own. But there's more. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here we see that when we fail to put off sin and to put on righteousness, not only does it affect the church, but it also affects God. Paul says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That is, we can make him sad. The Spirit of God has sealed us as individuals for the day of redemption, but he also works together in our lives corporately by sealing us together to get us all together on a path to heaven. Like, like he seals us like, like, like mortar in between bricks that hold a wall together. That's what the Spirit's doing in the life of this church to get us all in the same direction. When you think about a child, uh, you remember being a kid in school? You probably thought that your teacher was just always thinking about you. You know, you just thought that you were the only kid in the classroom. But the truth is, if you've ever been a teacher, if you've ever had a responsibility for a large group of children before, you're, you know, yeah, little Timmy and yeah, Jenny, and that's fine, I I love you guys, but you're really concerned about the whole classroom. I'm trying to get everybody to the drinking fountain and everybody to the bathroom and everybody to recess, and I'm worried about everybody's test scores. Well, that's that's the way the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. He's, He's working to get the body of Christ to heaven not just us. And, and when the church works at cross purposes with the Spirit, it grieves him. It grieves him. You should know that this language of grieving the Holy Spirit is not unique to Paul. He didn't coin this phrase. It's not unique to the, to the New Testament. In Isaiah 63, Isaiah recounts the way the Lord rescued his people from Egypt only to have them turn and rebel against him in the desert. And then he says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So anytime, now listen, that's corporate language. That's not individual language, that's corporate language. The, the people of God have grieved the Spirit of God by working at cross purposes with his redemption. So anytime the people of God undermine the work of God by continuing in sin and rebellion, it grieves the Holy Spirit. You've probably been in a scenario before where you've tried to love someone and serve someone and do good for them at great cost to yourself, only to have them continue to walk down the wrong path or to just turn away from it, maybe sometimes over and over again. And that can be aggravating, but it can also be heartbreaking. And I think that that's what the Spirit experiences whenever we as a church work against Him rather than with Him. 
Anytime that we lie or steal or tear down or let anger take over our lives, we're not only destroying the church, we are also, and most importantly, affecting our relationship with God. Next, in verses 31 and 32, we see Paul doing the same sort of thing that he's done in verses 25 and 29, the put off and put on, but now he does a rapid fire version of it. Let's, let's read it for ourselves. 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So here... He's not taking time to focus on each one of these things. He's just listing off a whole bunch of them. Stop doing all of this, dot, 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 and start doing this, dot, 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 because of this. And that leads us into our second idea for this morning. In order to grow in sanctification, you must practice imitation. <coughs> if you want to grow in sanctification, you must practice imitation. So let's, let's, re- let's return to Aristotle for a moment. Aristotle very much believed in encouraging the masses to abandon vice and pursue virtue. But his why, why abandon vice, why pursue virtue, it was very different than Paul's. You see, all of Aristotle's ethical teachings were grounded, they were rooted in a worldview that doesn't take into account the God of the universe, the God of the Bible. Aristotle thought that we needed to become more virtuous because only when we are truly virtuous are we really and fully what nature intended us to be. Taking cues from his teacher, Plato, Aristotle believed that there was a form of a human out there that was perfectly virtuous. And so he said, The masses need to pursue whatever that form is to become fully human. Now, there's a sense in which the Bible agrees with Aristotle here. There's a sense. You see, long before Aristotle came onto the scene, long before Aristotle came onto the scene, the Bible said this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you see, the Bible does say that there is a form after which we are created, but the form is not some shadow that's out there in some ephemeral realm. The form that we are created after is a person. It's God himself. And the Bible tells us that our only hope is not to become perfectly virtuous by putting off and putting on until we can achieve some high level of virtue. Rather, the Bible tells us our only hope is in Jesus. Aristotle believed that there there actually was a perfect person out there. He believed that the way that we could grow in virtue was by looking at that person and imitating that person. He called this the moral exemplar. So you're not what you should be. You look out there, you see see somebody who is incredibly virtuous, that's your moral exemplar. You just go and imitate them until you become like them. The Bible tells us that there is a moral exemplar. But it's not just some other person. It's Jesus. When you read your Bible, you learn the lesson over and over again that as great as people are, as amazing as these heroes in the Bible are, none of them are worthy of our emulation. 
none of them are virtuous enough that, that we would look at them and go, oh yeah, you're going to be my moral exemplar. I'm going to look at you and imitate you to become exactly what God wants me to be. You think about Abraham. He was a liar and a coward on more than one occasion in the same way. Moses had, to put it lightly, some pretty severe anger issues. Samson had, uh, again, to put it lightly, a weakness for women. David, we're not going to get into that. It was just bad, okay? Peter denied Christ. Paul was pretty open in Romans about his inability to, like, keep his sin under control, you know? I don't do the things I want to do, and I do do the things that I, I don't want to do. If we were to adopt Aristotle's view of morality that says we need to just find some other human being and try to be like them, we would be lost because the Bible doesn't have heroes. It only has anti-heroes. The same thing is true of our lives. But here's the thing, though. Aristotle wasn't completely wrong. You see, in this morning's text, Paul tells us that we do have a moral exemplar, and his name is Jesus. Paul says that one of the main ways that we can grow in our sanctification is by imitating Christ. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you see that? Paul says, hey, you need to walk in love. And then we all ask ourselves the question, how can we walk in love? We're not a loving people. We live in an unloving world. What does love look like? How can we make sense of that concept? And Paul says, just look at Jesus. You want to know what love is? Look at Jesus. He is your moral exemplar. God is love. Yeah, but how do I know what God is like? I can't see God. I've never seen him. Well, if you want to know what God is like, you look at his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is virtue personified. You can see the same idea in verse 32 of chapter 4, right? Where Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Well, how can I do that? How do I know what it looks like to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving? Well, he tells you. He says, as... God in Christ forgave you. So if you want to know what it looks like to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, all you have to do is look at the gospel. Because in the gospel, you see what God has done in Christ for you. And there is your example. Now, there's one key phrase that I want us to look at before we wrap up our time together this morning. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 1, that they must imitate God in a particular way. Look back there. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, as beloved children. See, I don't want us to walk away this morning thinking about ourselves as virtue treasure hunters, you know, as virtue collectors, as people who are trying to put off enough of that junk over there and build up enough of ourselves over here so that we have the high score when it comes to holiness or righteousness. The reason why Paul tells us that we must imitate God is because we love him like children love their father. Aristotle believed in this concept of eudaimonia. It was this idea of reaching peak humanity, becoming the perfect man through your virtue. 
And that was the end of Aristotle's morality. It was utilitarian in nature. But our faith, the Christian gospel, is not utilitarian, it's relational. God is a father. He teaches us to pray to him that way, and we are his children. We don't believe in a shadow or a form of perfection. We believe in a person, and that person is our father, and we are his children. And so we look at our dad, and we just want to be like him. I never had that growing up, and I want that so bad for my children. And sometimes I feel like, how do I know that I'm doing this right? Well, it's nice to have other fathers to look up to and to look around and say, okay, I think, yeah. But even if I didn't have any of that, I can look at God, God, my father, and I can imitate him. And I know that as long as I'm imitating God, my father, if my children imitate me, they're gonna be going in the right direction. So let's think again. Let's go back and think through these four ethical imperatives from point number one. And let's think about them in this light, this light of imitation because of affection. Let's think about telling the truth. As Christians, we don't lie fundamentally because God doesn't lie. Our dad doesn't lie. Our dad is a truth teller. I'm trying not to get emotional, but I just hope that my kids, when they look at me, they just know that my dad's never going to lie to me. You know, my dad's never going to be the person that's going to compromise his integrity by lying. And I can say that about our father. You can say that about our father. We see this most clearly in Jesus' life and ministry, right? Jesus never lied. He only spoke the truth because he was the truth. When he was talking to other people who were more religious uh, than uh, they were religious, but they didn't actually know God, he says this about them. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. So you see there, he says, hey, Pharisees, you're imitating your dad, Right? Then he says this, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we belong to the world, we lied because we were imitating our father. Now that we belong to Jesus, we tell the truth because we're imitating our father. Do you see? Looking back at anger, God is never sinfully angry. He's always appropriately angry, right? He's angry for the right reasons. His anger never flares out of control. It's never excessive. Whenever he experienced righteous indignation, he handled it properly, and he executed justice because of it. Think about stealing and hard work. We know that God is our provider. God doesn't steal. Quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. Stealing is, I want something, you have it, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to take it at cost to you for benefit of me. But the gospel says, you can't offer me anything. God says, you don't have anything to give me. And as a matter of fact, you're you're in debt to me, so I'm going to give you something at great cost to myself. I'm going to give you my son Jesus so that you can benefit. If you think about Edifying speech. God's words are always pure. They always build up. One of the reasons why there's always an open Bible, whether we're in Sunday school or Wednesday night or preaching in this pulpit or in a counseling session or with evangelism is because we we know that only God's word can build up. Only God's word can give life. 
because his words are pure and holy and righteous and good. God always says the right thing the right way at the right time for the right reasons. Do you see, church? Do you see the example that we have in Jesus? Can't we just look at Christ and his life and his ministry and just emulate him and try to grow in our holiness in this way? You know, every now and again, I'm uniquely reminded of the uniqueness of the gospel in the marketplace of world religions. Right, you think about what's out there, Buddhism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, Islam, Judaism, therapeutic deism. In contrast to every man-made religion, the gospel says something incredibly unique. It says, you don't become righteous by doing more of this and less of that. So you think about the five pillars of Islam. God maybe might accept you into paradise if you practice these five virtues and you abstain from these things over here. And you could just do that with any other man-made religion. But the gospel says exactly the opposite of that. The gospel says you can't do enough good things and you can't put off enough bad things in order for God to love you, in order to be received by God. The Christian gospel says that if you repent of your sins and if you trust in Christ, you've been made righteous already. And all of the putting off and all of the putting on is just us trying to grow to be more like our dad. He already loves us. We don't have to earn his love. Now we put off and put on in light of the love that we have as his children. Can't you see after today's time in the world, in, in the word that as helpful as Aristotle might be, as wise as he might be in so many different ways, he's wrong in all the ways that matter eternally. And what a sad thing it would be for any man or woman to shape their entire life after some, someone even as bright as Aristotle. I hope that the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in the Christian gospel stands out to you this morning. I hope that you understand that Christ alone stands at the center stage of the world and at, at the center of history, claiming to be God, calling on men to imitate him, to follow him, and ultimately, to find rest in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, aren't you tired? I mean, honestly, aren't you exhausted trying to trying to find your purpose, trying to reach your peak humanity in some, just through your own efforts, through your own works, by not doing this and doing enough of that. I don't know how you do it. But you don't have to do it anymore. You can come to Christ and let him give you rest. Let him love you. Let him be your father. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, and you're hearing me talk about what this, what this Christian gospel means, and you're thinking, you know what, man, that's not the gospel that I heard growing up. In the church I heard growing up, I, I had to stop doing this and start doing that so that God would love me, so that I could go to heaven, so that I wouldn't have to go to hell. Well, friends, I hope you understand 
I'm sorry if your mom or your dad taught you that gospel or maybe that pastor that you really liked growing up. I understand that this may be unsettling. You may be hearing something that kind of makes you second guess a lot of the church tradition that you grow up in. And I'm sure that's probably painful and confusing. I don't want that to be true, but I also don't want you to continue to live with a burden that says that you have to do enough good things and stop doing enough bad things in order for God to love you. So you can find rest too. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to imitate you. We see so many men and women, so many organizations, so many ideas and philosophies around us every day that we're so drawn to, that we want to imitate. We know that there's nothing worthy of our affections and our imitation more than your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would help us to live out what we've heard this morning in joy as we go back out into the world. Amen.